Well, 94 years ago, the Lord saw fit to bring a man whose birthday we celebrate today, and many people will celebrate tomorrow through him being off, Martin Luther King Jr. into the world. King came into the world where some of the sins that Sorrell talked about earlier that originate in people's hearts and export through hateful actions and attitudes towards others were prevalent. Where people who simply because of the, the difference of the color of their skin were hated and mistreated. And the Lord is kind to us in that he often sends fallible, fallen men and women into the world to do good works for him. The Lord used King in some marvelous ways to not perfectly, but progressively move the needle to cause people to start treating each other as actually created in God's image. To, to cause people to actually see one another as valuable and worthy. It's a project that 94 years after his coming into the earth continues to, to go on. Still imperfectly, but still we pray progressively. Look, God brings people into the world to, to change things. Dr. King's life was a small example of that. Well, you know, as, as wonderful and as great as the things that, that this man and other men and women in his time and since then have done, the reality is that the, the greatest of men, the greatest of women who do the greatest of acts pass away. They die. And while their legacies remain and all their works remain, they're not coming back to do better things or greater things. In some way, the Lord prepares us for better things through even people who do great things now. And so while we can celebrate and observe the works and contributions of great men and women, the Lord reminds us to look not at what happened then or what's happening now, but to look for what will happen again. When we think about the Lord bringing a great man into the world before, Jesus Christ, and the passages that we've looked at last week and this week remind us to look for him, not simply in the past, for the things that he did, but to look for him because he is one who's coming back and to observe what he did and to prepare well for his return. That's what we pray we will do through God's word this morning. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24. And this morning we'll look at verses 36 through 51 together. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find it on page 830. There's a Bible under the chair. If you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily understand, that doesn't have all the these and thous that maybe the grandma gave you at some point in life, and you need a Bible that you can more easily understand, feel free to take this Bible home with you. We'd love to have you have your own copy of God's Word. The book of Matthew is written by Jesus, the disciple Matthew, recounting Jesus' life. And the passage we'll look at this morning actually are Jesus' words to us. Jesus is speaking as we read these words. Matthew 24, starting at verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give to them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that house will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what I think is the main idea of Matthew 24 verses 36 through 51 main idea of our passage this morning. The time of Christ's return is unknown. And it will come upon many people unexpectedly. But God's people must not be unprepared. The time of Christ's return is unknown. And it will come upon many people unexpectedly. But God's people must not be unprepared. As we walk through this passage, the kind of three parts of that main idea, the three realities that we see in this text, will serve as the three points that will guide us as we, we study this brief passage. So point number one, the time of Christ's return is unknown. We see that in, verses, uh, in verse 36. The time of Christ's return is unknown. Number two, it will come upon many people unexpectedly. We see that in verses 37 through 41. And point number three, God's people must not be unprepared. We see that in verses 42 through 51. The time of Christ's return is unknown. It will come upon many people unexpectedly, point two. And third point, God's people must not be unprepared. Point number one, the time of Christ's return is unknown. As we begin to look at this passage, it calls us to look back at where we were last week. I mean, just grammatically, a sentence like verse 36 that begins with the word, but beckons us to look at what previously was said before it. All right, what is this but contrasting to? What happened before it that now is being a kind of change, a transition? Last week, you remember, we began this chapter with Jesus leaving the temple. And as he did, he says in verse 2 that, that a day was coming when, 
Not one stone upon another would be left. A day was coming when the temple would be destroyed. It led the disciples to ask some logical questions. Well, when? I mean, look at verse 3 of this chapter. The disciples came to Jesus saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We noted that the disciples asked two separate questions there. One was concerning the timing of the temple's destruction that Jesus had just spoke about. When will these things happen? And the second question concerned the timing and the signs that would mark the return of Christ and the end of the world. And largely in the the passage we looked at last week in verses 4 through 35, as Jesus responded, he was answering largely that first question. When will these things be? When will the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem be? It was signs of destruction that that would mark the the end of Jerusalem as they knew it, the end of the temple, but that still had points that predicted future fulfillments of further judgment, that still pointed to future and greater events where Christians would experience suffering throughout all the age until Christ returns. I mean, just notice the, the focus that was on the that first question, the temple, in, in the previous passage. We have your Bible, just look back at verse 19, where Jesus, in talking about the invasion of foreign forces and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, says, And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Or look at verse 22. And it, in, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. He's answering the disciples' first question about what would mark its end. He tells them what would happen in those days. But look at the contrast in verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day. You get that? All those references to to those days were to a specific day. But, verse 36, in that day, Jesus is intentionally speaking of another day, another time, another event, not the destruction of the temple. That's in those days, but in that day. Jesus is exclusively now, starting in verse 36, answering the disciples' second question concerning the time of his second coming. Concerning that day, Jesus says, and that hour, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus calls the disciples not to worry themselves about looking for signs of his return or to try to dogmatically estimate the time of it. Because literally, everybody is ignorant. I mean, just read Jesus' words here. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. And notice that this ignorance exists at escalating levels of natures and abilities and powers. No one includes no human being who's ever lived. No matter how smart they are, no matter how great of a student they are, no human being knows when Jesus is returning. No one includes no angelic being. Not even the angels. 
Though they sit in the presence of the glory of God in heaven day and night singing as we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Even though these angels' mental and intellectual abilities have not been tainted by sin like ours, still they have no clue when Christ is coming back. No one includes even Jesus. Not even the Son of God knows the day or hour of his return, but only the Father. So friends, it means that you've got to be a special kind of conceited or crazy to think that you alone have some secret knowledge that no other person or angel or even Jesus himself has about the date of his return. And yet, people still make such claims. People still make such predictions. The most popular in the last 20 or 30 years came from a man named Harold Camping. Some of you will know that name well. In the early 90s, Camping, a self-taught and self-described Bible scholar, started developing complex end-of-the-world prophecies through mathematical calculations. And, and, and what he said were clues sprinkled throughout the Bible. In 1992, he said that the day of judgment and Christ's return would be September the 6th, 1994. When that date came and passed, Camping revised his predictions, pushing the, the date forward 17 years. I don't know where he got 17 from. To, to May 21st, 2011. When that date came and went, Camping explained that what had happened was <laughs> there was an invisible judgment day that, that did happen on May 21st. But he'd gotten some of the calculations off by about six months. The real, the physical, the final judgment of Christ's return would be October 21st. 2011. Needless to say, October 21st came and went. And then December 15th, 2013 came and went. The day when camping himself went out of this world, dying without any of his bold predictions coming to pass. And yet, while on earth, many people followed him. Many people believed him. He spoke with such certainty, such conviction, such clarity, such convincing calculations that many people quit their jobs, sold their homes, wiped out their savings to support camping's end-of-the-world campaign. Saints, that's why we need our Bibles, so that we will not be beguiled. Who cares how convincing or how convicted someone is of their beliefs? The question is, what does the Bible say? The world is going to end in 1994. Matthew 24, 36. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Jesus is coming back in May 2011. Matthew 24, 36. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven. Oh, the final judgment is October 21st, 2011. Matthew 24, 36. No one knows. 
Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard against people supposing some secret knowledge or who claim to find hidden clues in the Bible. Saints, trust what the text clearly says. No one knows the day or hour. Verse 36 causes major problems for many so-called modern prophets. It pokes holes through their faulty predictions. Verse 36 has also often caused problems for many other professing Christians as well. But for other reasons. Because it seems to poke holes through our firm convictions. I mean, how can it be here that the son does not know the time of his return, but only the father? I mean, Jesus claims to be God, the son, the second person in the Trinity. That's what we believe. That's what we confess. But isn't God omniscient? Doesn't God know everything? So how can the son not know, but only the father? I mean, don't we say that the father and the son and the spirit are of the same essence and share the exact same perfections and powers and divine attributes? And yet clearly Jesus says here that like humans and angels, he does not know when he is coming back. Texts like this cause some Christians to worry. It creates a conflict, a crisis of faith. Jesus is supposed to be God, but he doesn't know everything. What do I do with that? A text like this caused some people to walk away from Christ. Jesus can't be God. This text proves so. I mean, I can't trust the Bible. I can't trust Jesus. I can't trust what people say about Jesus. But friends, I want to suggest that it's texts like this that should make us not worry and not walk away from Christ, but texts like this should make us worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me explain why. Because texts like this show us something of the wonder of the person and the work of Christ. Jesus is the eternal son of God who became a man. And truly lived as the perfect man, the perfect man that you and I should have been. Yes, he is the divine son who has always existed. And when he became a man, he did not lose any of his divinity. He did not lose any of his divine attributes. For then, if he did, Jesus would cease to be God. But rather, texts like Philippians 2 tell us That he didn't lose any of his divinity when he left heaven. Instead, he added to himself a human nature. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself, not by divulging himself of divine attributes. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And in that human nature, he chose to live within the limitations of that nature. Unless the father willed otherwise. So, for instance, as an example of Jesus purposely limiting himself as a man, see him refusing to turn stones into bread in the wilderness in Matthew 4. As we'll study in a few weeks, 
See Jesus refusing to call down legions of angels to come and rescue him from arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He undertook the temptations of men as a man, but without sin. And without activating the cheat code of his divinity to get through them sinlessly. Right? When Jesus got in a hard spot, he didn't say, oh, let me activate my God side. No, he lived perfectly as a man. The, the way all men must live, all women must live on earth, totally dependent upon his heavenly father and totally submitted to him. As God the Son, he eternally knows all. As God the Son incarnate in the flesh, as a human being on earth, he knows all that the Father wills for him to know. And he is content with what the Father has not willed for him to know as a human, such as when he would return. Now, we often find ourselves embarrassed to admit ignorance about anything. Almost any response for us is better than to blurt out, I don't know. So we make up stuff. We make up half-truths or untruths. Anything is better than saying, I don't know. Even though there are many things, millions of things that we do not know. But here is the one who never lacked any knowledge, who never was curious, who never had a question for which he had no response. Here is the one who enjoyed backstage access to the secret things that Deuteronomy 29, 29 say belong to God because he is God the Son. But in becoming a man, he took on some ignorance. He took on some limited knowledge to live as a man for us. And he did so gladly, willingly, humbly submitting his power and his will to his heavenly father. My friends, if Jesus Christ, the greatest man, the God man, was content living life on earth, willfully embracing certain limitations under the will of God, so much so should we, so much more so should we. I mean, why do we think we must know God's will for everything? Why do we think we must know all God's plans? Why do we think we must know God's timing? When, Lord, when? Who are you, O oh man? The Son of God who possessed from all eternity all power and all authority and all knowledge so loved you and cared for you that he humbled himself by becoming like you to save you, to save you and me from the self-serving, self-seeking, self-conceited ways that doing calculations and declaring dates of his return demonstrate. He came to save you and me and to inaugurate his kingdom. And he's coming back ultimately to rescue us and to consummate that kingdom. Amen. That's all we need to know. Amen. That's what Jesus was content to know. Timing of his return is unknown. And saints, that's okay. It calls us all to trust in him. To trust in him. The, the when of the thing is a mystery. We don't know the date, but the what of the thing is a fixed fact. Christ is coming back at some point. Amen. And it will catch some people. It will come upon some people unexpectedly. That brings us to our second point. Christ's return will come upon many 
unexpectedly. That's the point Jesus starts to make in, in verse 37. Yes, he's coming back in an unknown time and will catch people unaware. And he illustrates the point by first looking at the story of Noah and the flood. And look at verse 37 with me. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. I think what stands out first here is that Jesus believes that Noah is a historical figure. And Jesus believes that the flood, as amazing as it was, was a historical event. How did Jesus know about Noah and the flood? The same way that you and me know about Noah and the flood from Genesis chapter 6 and 7, the chapters that Sorrel read for us earlier. Jesus Christ read the Bible. Jesus Christ believed the Bible. And friends, so should we. Don't let people with prestigious PhDs from fancy universities tell you that the Bible can't be true. Don't let people of other religions convince you that the Bible is just man's word and it's filled with all kinds of faults and errors. It has to be inaccurate. Friends, follow Jesus' example. Read your Bibles and believe every single word of your Bibles. From the Old Testament books of Genesis to the New Testament books like Matthew that we're studying, it's all God's word. It's all true. It's all useful to teach us and to correct us and to rebuke us and to train us in righteousness. Here, Jesus uses the story of Noah and the flood to to teach us about the suddenness of God's judgment and to train us to live in the right way in light of his coming judgment. In Noah's day, as Sorrel reminded us of earlier in reading the passage and praying for us, people were a lot like us. They were sinners through and through. I mean, Sorrel read for us earlier, they were corrupt. Maybe you think you're so better than that. The Bible says you are corrupt. Amen. That describes not people simply in Noah's day. That describes people in every day, in every age. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And friends, sin is not a light thing. The Bible also says that the penalty of sin is death. And yet, with an impending death sentence hanging over their heads, people in Noah's day went about their days doing normal activities. They were engaged in the regular routines of life. They had dinner together. They enjoyed good food. They had good wine in each other's company. They shared stories and laughter and plans for the future. They held parties and celebrated life events. They married each other, and they arranged weddings for their children. They went about life as if life would go on forever. But all the while, there was a man in their midst building a boat. Who knows how long it took, but considering its size, it probably took quite some time. And Noah, like Paul centuries after him, seemed to be a multitasker. As he built... As he worked, he ministered, he preached, 
2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 calls Noah a herald of righteousness. You know what a herald is? It's someone who goes about crying aloud, a proclaimer, a preacher. Noah was a builder, but Noah was also a builder slash preacher. Noah was also a righteous man. Text tells us that. And upon seeing all the unrighteousness in the land, God told Noah that he was going to wipe it all away with the flood. That Noah was to build this ark, this boat to save himself and his family. And as Noah built that ark, as other people were going on with their own days and Noah built that ark, the message he most likely was preaching to the people around him was to repent because certain judgment from God is coming. Amen. God didn't tell Noah when he'd bring the floodwaters, but he told him that they were coming. And Noah proclaimed to others about this coming judgment. But nobody listened. Nobody cared. Nobody paid any attention. They went on with the cares of the world, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until... The end of verse 38 tells us the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware, unaware of what was going to happen until the flood came suddenly and swept them all away. The only people spared were those in the ark, Noah and his family. Jesus says, in like manner, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I mean, here we are, as Sorrel reminded us, in a time where people are just as corrupt as in Noah's day. And God has promised coming judgment. And he sent many people, many heralds, many preachers, many proclaimers, many parents, warning of that impending judgment and calling people to repent. And yet, people ignore those warnings. Disregard those heralds as fun-sucking prudes, preaching doom and gloom when life is lovely. Just live and let live. Let's eat and drink and party and be merry. But Jesus tells us that history will repeat itself in a most final way. That's how they were before in Noah's day. The same way you live in, kind of living it up, YOLO, they were doing that too. You ain't new or different. Folks always been partying and planning, and then came judgment. And no one was laughing when the floodwaters came roaring. And no one will be laughing when Jesus comes back and catches people consumed in their everyday activities. It won't be this grand, dramatic series of precursors that paved the way for his arrival, that let people know he's on the way. No, folks will be doing normal stuff going to brunches and to bars, going to the barber shop and to the beauty salon, playing ball or playing spades, uh, scrolling Twitter and adding to their Amazon cart. People are going to be in bed with their spouse. Or worse, in bed with somebody who's not their spouse. They're going to be doing what they do until the day that the Son of Man comes and catches them all unaware. Sudden destruction is coming again with the sudden coming of the Son of Man, Jesus warns. And the only way to be saved, 
is again through what would happen on a wooden object. In Noah's day, it was the wooden ark that carried Noah and his household through the flood. But that wooden ark that carried and physically saved one family pointed to a wooden cross that the Son of Man carried and upon which he would hang and die to save all the families of the earth. The very judgment that Jesus speaks of here, the coming judgment, was in a number of days going to be happening. Not for the whole world yet, the very judgment that Jesus was promising would come was in just a few days about to come upon himself. In a few days, he died on the cross for the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And he rose from the grave three days later, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient payment for all our sins. And he ascended into heaven where he will one day return from. Until then, he's calling his own to trust in him, to repent of their sins and to believe in him because he is coming back. Friends, the question is, are you prepared to meet him? It's coming soon, friends. I don't know the date. And I know you sat in services where some preacher kind of preached kind of doom and gloom, fire and brimstone, and it seemed like he was just doing that to get more money or to get more members. Friends, I'm not doing any of that. I'm trying to say that sudden destruction is coming soon, and I have it on good authority from God the Son himself. And the question is, are you ready to meet God when he comes back? This is no light business. If you are not, the most important thing you must do today is to give your life to Jesus Christ. To turn from the way you came in here this morning as a sinner and a rebel to God. And to ask the Lord to transform you and to give you a new heart and a new life and a new spirit. He will do it and all the folks around you are evidence of it. God will save you if you turn from your sins and cry out to him to save you. And if you need to know more about what that looks like, talk to somebody around you after service. Come find me at the door. We love to, to tell you how you must follow Jesus. Do not delay. Do not delay. You cannot delay. Because Jesus is coming and will find us as we are and wipe us away in judgment in the midst of what we're doing. I mean, that's the same premise behind verses 40 and 41. The, the sudden nature, again, of this coming judgment with the coming Son of Man. People are doing normal activities. Two men will be in the field. Amen. One taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Right? They're going to be doing normal stuff. Well, some have understood these verses to talk about a, a secret rapture where believers are carried up to heaven while others are left behind. That view's mostly been popularized over the last couple decades through the series of books and movies of, of the Left Behind series. But friends, as you look at the text in the, in the context of this passage, I think it's pretty clear that to be taken is to be taken away in judgment. To be the one left behind is actually a good thing. It's to be saved. I mean, remember the context in which Jesus is speaking. He just talked about the floodwaters that took away that swept away all those in Noah's day in judgment. Noah and his family were the ones left. 
The ones left behind, they were the ones who were safe and preserved. And he says here, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, people are going to be doing normal activities, activities, working in the field, working at the mill. And unbelievers, rebels, those who rejected Christ, when he returns, will be the ones judged, taken away right in the midst of what they're doing. While those left will be saved. Friends, where will you be? Judged or delivered? Swept away or saved? There won't be any advance warning of Christ's return other than these warnings in the scripture, other than these warnings I'm trying to give you today from God's word. Christ is coming at a time that is unknown, and it will come, it will catch many people unexpectedly. Saints, don't you be one of them. You must rather be prepared. That leads to our third and final point. God's people must not be unprepared. In light of Christ's sure return, but the uncertain date and the timing of it, Christians must be vigilant. Always prepared and always ready for the coming of the Lord. And what does that look like? Well, two ways in particular I think the Lord calls us in the rest of this chapter to be prepared for his return. First, by being watchful, and second, by working. First, we must be watchful. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, therefore, as an implication of all I just said about the sudden and unexpected nature of my return, therefore, what must you do? Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Be watchful, be alert. And in verses 43 through 44, he uses the illustration of a homeowner and a thief, saying that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, alert, stay awake, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. This is just logical, right? It makes sense. None of us would go to sleep at 1045 tonight if we knew that at 1050 a burglar was going to come and break into the house. No, we'd be on the lookout. We'd have our eyes open, our antennas up. We'd make sure all the doors were locked, all the floodlights were working. You're like Macaulay Culkin. You might booby trap the whole house in anticipation of these robbers. You'd be ready. Well, friends, Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. We don't know the exact time he's coming, but we know he's coming and he calls us to be ready, to be watchful. That's a needed word for us, isn't it? To be awake, to be watchful, to be alert. As some sisters reminded me of yesterday, there's a, a danger that we too often find of too many Christians being spiritually sleepy. They don't live with any sense of spiritual purpose. They don't prioritize spiritual things. They aren't keen of any spiritual drifting. They don't joyfully long for spiritual renewal and transformation, and so they don't eagerly anticipate Christ's return. They don't want spiritual things, and so they don't want the Spirit of God filled filled in the person of Jesus Christ coming back. They don't even think about that. Friends, does, does, does that describe you? 
If it does, then one of the most important things you can do is pray. Now, we often say that prayer changes things, but friends, prayer changes people. It changes hearts. It changes desires. It changes affections. Pray that the Lord would wake you up. Pray that he'd wake you from the slumber of sin that clings close and kills affections for God. Pray that he'd wake you from being lulled by the world to prize all its possessions and all its pleasures. Pray that he'd wake you to the wonders of his son, the splendor of his glory, the excellence of his perfections, the magnitude of his love. Pray that he'd wake you to the amazing act of what Christ came and accomplished for you on the cross and that he'd cause you to long for his return and to wait for it with joy. Christ calls us to be watchful. Do you have a sleepy heart? Pray the Lord would wake it up. Do you be in eager anticipation for his any time return? But he also calls us to be working. That is, while we wait, we work for the Lord. We see that in the second parable that Jesus closes with in verses 45 through 51. I just look there at verse 45. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The picture is of a servant who has been put in a certain position and given certain responsibilities by his master. He he leaves the servant in charge of his affairs, and does not micromanage. But but he's coming back at some point to to check on things at an undisclosed date and time. And when he does, he, he finds his servant doing exactly what he tasked him with. And he blesses him with even more privileges. It's a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He is our master. You know, that's what that word Lord means. It means master. We we need to know what we are saying when we call Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Right? That means he owns every single part of us because he purchased us by his precious blood on the cross. We do not belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price. He brought us out of the miserable condition we were all in as slaves to sin, and he put us in a far better position as declared righteous in God's sight, as sons and daughters of God, as co-heirs with Christ. But with that great position come some responsibilities that our master has given us to live for him, to represent him, to honor him on earth with our words and with our actions. He's left us to tend to his affairs and he's given us his spirit to help us do so. And at an undisclosed date and time, he's coming back to see if we've been faithful to our calling. How will he find us? Will he find us so doing what he called us to do? If so, he will bless us and give us far greater rewards, eternal life and far greater privileges to rule with him forever. It's a call. It's an encouragement to be faithfully working for the Lord while we wait for his return. 
to do what God has called us to. And friends, often working for the Lord is not doing the big phenomenal things, but being obedient to Jesus in the everyday things. Remember, he's coming back when people are going about their normal affairs. For us, let us be doing those normal things well for his glory. What's that look like for us? Looks like husbands tenderly caring for our wives, repenting of our selfishness and pressing in to pursue them, sacrificially caring for them, living with them in an understanding way. It means wives joyfully and patiently submitting to their husbands, embracing and encouraging their leadership in the home, providing counsel to them and praying for them. It means couples being faithful to one another, not defiling the marriage bed. It means parents pouring into their children spiritually, reading the Bible to them, training them up in the way that they should go. It means children obeying their parents in the Lord. It means single people honoring the Lord with their singleness. Don't let your body be used as an object to to please others. Don't let your heart grow cold by complaining or by bitterness Use the season of singleness, however long it is, to give God undivided attention. It means employees working as unto the Lord and not to their bosses, giving their max effort in the most minimal and menial of tasks. It means showing respect to your bosses no matter how bad they treat you. It means dropping seeds of scripture and the gospel to your co-workers as you work. As church members, it means committing to come to church every week. It means committing to care for the body, being generous and hospitable and cheerful and prayerful, being kind to one another and forgiving one another, counseling and encouraging each other from Scripture. It means keeping each other from drifting and helping to keep each other in the faith. The Lord has not left us to twiddle our thumbs as we wait. He's given us a lot to do as we eagerly await his second coming. As I wonder, are you viewing your current assignment, whatever it is, as a husband or a wife, as a parent or a child, as a single person, as a co-worker, as a student, as a church member, are you viewing those current assignments as opportunities to be faithfully working for your master? Amen. How might that mindset transform how you view every day and your everyday activities? Amen. It's a blessing to be called into the service of the Lord. We are God's fellow workers. (laughs) What a privilege. What a reward we'll find in doing the work of the Lord well. But Jesus warns, there's another way you can be working as you wait. Not for the Lord, but against him. He says in verse 48, that wicked servant who says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master will come on a day when he doesn't expect and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, that place is a real place called hell, a place of eternal judgment, a place reserved for the devil, and all those who, like the devil, are workers of iniquity who see the Lord's delayed return. I mean, it hasn't happened in 2,000 years. And who use that delay to do more dirt. Mm. 
who dishonor God with their time and mistreat those made in God's image. It might seem like their actions will never catch up to them because the Lord, it seems, is never coming back. But Jesus warns he is coming back at any day and with those who dishonor him today, he will sentence them to spend every day in eternal torment. Saint, don't let any of us be among them. Don't let any of us be among them. The Lord is talking to us here in advance so that we would not be among them. He wants us to be with him forever. He's demonstrated that by his actions. He came to save us. He died on the cross to rescue us. He's demonstrated that by his actions and he's demonstrating that by his words. He's preaching here to his people that we might be prepared for his coming. Saints, let us take heed and listen and live for him until the time of his return, whenever it may be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that guards us and it guides us, that protects us from our own sinful ambitions, sinful thoughts, sinful planning. Lord, we pray that your word would convict and challenge us this morning, Lord. Whoever is not prepared for the second coming of Christ, oh Lord, shake them up even now. Oh Lord, use the rest of the day, use this week, Lord, to trouble some souls that need to be troubled. But also, Lord, to comfort some souls that need to be comforted. Remind us, Lord, that trouble won't last always, that the trials and persecutions of this life will come to an end, that Jesus is coming back to rescue us. And so, Lord, encourage us to work for him and for his glory even now through and in every assignment you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.